Uh, hi, my name is Tristan Cromer. I am an innovation coach at Chromatic, I'm, where I'm the founder. Uh, we work with either very, very large companies or very, very small companies, helping them embrace the spirit of entrepreneurship and really get in that mindset of building uh, products and entering new markets rapidly. Uh, not you know taking two years to get to market, but generally taking a week or sometimes even less to go and get their initial level of feedback. So that's kind of what I do. I, I've worked with a lot of Fortune 500 companies. I've worked with a ton of startups and accelerator programs around the world. I've built a few accelerator programs from the ground up. Uh, and I've even done accelerator manager training programs out in Vietnam. Um, so I have a fairly broad range of experience there and I hope I can be of some help during this podcast. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this episode recorded in October 2019, we introduced Tristan Cromer, San Francisco-based entrepreneur, innovation advisor, and lean startup guru. Tristan's journey is a fascinating one. From touring musician to marketing executive, startup coach to innovation advisor to multinational companies. Today we're discussing Tristan's unique and circuitous career trajectory, what lean really means in different contexts, the future of entrepreneurship education, and so much more. So for you listeners out there who want a ton of useful advice on how to build a lean organization, this episode is for you. Hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from WHU on the banks of the Rhine River in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Well, Tristan, Cromer, welcome. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, I know our mutual friend Chris has tried to connect us over the years on, on multiple occasions. And when he listened to the first podcast, ep podcast episode, he reached out right away and he said, all right, now you definitely have to reach out to Tristan and, and get him on your show. So I really appreciate cool. you being here and uh, looking forward to giving you the opportunity to kind of educate and, and inform our audience a little bit. Uh, pleasure, Garrett. I will say hello to Chris. I just spoke to him two days ago. So uh, I speak to him fairly regularly and he'll be happy to know that we finally connected. Yeah, indeed. Awesome. Well, I like to kind of kick off all of the episodes, really kind of digging in a little bit into people's entrepreneurial journey. You know, everybody comes from a different place and uh, I find entrepreneurs more than anyone um, usually have interesting stories of how they went from, from point A to point B and all the other points in between. So, you know, maybe we can start learning a little bit about you, where you come from, what it is that you do, and kind of how you embarked on the journey that got you to where you are today. Uh, yeah, my journey is pretty haphazard. Um, and depending on how far back you want to go, I, I started out in the music industry as a musician and a songwriter. So uh, that goes way, way back. Um, and I spent, spent 10 years in the music industry doing pretty much anything I could 
do to, you know, earn 40 bucks. I, I sat in a car once and I drove 12 hours from New York to Maine, I think, uh, in a blizzard with, uh, I think three other guys, none of whom smelled particularly great. And, and uh, I played a gig in, in the blizzard, no, not outside in the blizzard, but at a bar in the blizzard. We had absolutely zero audience and I got paid $40 for that gig. <laughs> So, uh, so that's kind of my school of hard knocks, like really coming from the ground up with the same sort of, uh, the same sort of dreams and ideas that you have in the tech industry, industry, this, this idea that, oh, I have this brilliant idea. And if I, if I just find the right people, you know, if I just find a venture capitalist, also known as an A&R rep in the music industry, if I just find a, a drummer with really good chops, uh, also known as a, a engineer or a coder in the tech industry. Um, then I'm going to be famous and successful because I've uh, got a wonderful idea. And uh, unfortunately, that's just not the way it works. Uh, it does take a little bit more um, savvy and determination and hard work. It takes a little bit of maneuvering and general entrepreneurial uh, gusto to, to be successful. So while I enjoyed 10 years in the music industry and I paid my bills, uh, you know, I was never a breakout success, but I, I, I learned so much looking back on it. And I realize now that I've kind of spent five years in IT security in the past what, almost 10 years in startup land, like how many mistakes I made in the music industry where if I had known a little bit more about how entrepreneurship works, how markets work, how business works, how marketing works, um, how much I could have improved my effectiveness uh, as an entrepreneur just by developing a few basic skills beforehand. Awesome. So how did you, I know you're in the Bay Area now, how did you get from yeah. being a musician in New York to uh, being a lean startup guru in San Francisco? Uh, it's almost too convoluted to go into. There's about 10 different cities in between those two things. You know, I, I got kind of sick of uh, I got sick of the music industry mostly because the business model didn't really work for me. You know, the type of music that I really enjoy and that, that thrilled me was this kind of relatively large band. Uh, um, you know, I sometimes would have ten people on stage, and uh, at at this time when you can be one person with a uh, a, a loop. <laughs> You know, a pedal that's going to give you a loop. You'll just play your guitar and then loop yourself over that. And that's your whole band. You've just got a loop or you're just a DJ. And you're one person. And that sort of business model is incredibly cost effective. Right? So if you want to take a 10-person band on the road, it just doesn't really work. So that's, that's an example where the, the reality of the product that I wanted to build didn't really match the, the business environment at the time. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm done with this. This is not what I want to do with my life. I don't want to sit in a van by myself even. Uh, driving around the country doing gigs. This is just not fun. and It's just not worth it to me. So I, I, I took my marketing chops and uh, I went into the IT security industry and I wound up working for a Swiss IT security firm for uh, around five years, I think maybe a little bit more. And uh, I wound up traveling quite a lot. I went from the US to uh, lived in Germany for a little while for almost two years. I lived in uh, Taiwan for six months, uh, studying a little bit of Chinese, uh, a little bit more marketing. Um, I moved to Switzerland for a year, uh, and then I wound up uh, 
unintentionally running the uh, Vietnam operations of the IT security company and overseeing the Chinese office. So uh, this was during the financial crisis. So it, it was a very, very weird situation where, you know, the VP of marketing got fired. I had to take over marketing at the, uh, I went to Vietnam to hire some more marketing people. The chief technical officer, the CTO, fired the general manager in Vietnam while I was there with the intention of the CTO taking over that office. And then the CEO fired the CTO. Uh, so I was kind of the last person standing. <laughs> so I wound up with a ridiculous number of responsibilities in five different business cards in, in four different languages. Um, and, you know, having to apply some of that entrepreneurialism that I, I learned in the music industry where there's no excuse for like, that's not my job. You just have to do it. You know, whatever it takes, whether that's tuning the guitars or printing the flyers or figuring out the marketing campaign or, or just figuring out how to email 5,000 uh, fans with your latest gig info, uh, you do whatever it takes to get the job done and there's no excuses. Um, and so I, uh, I found myself in that position again uh, building new products as part of a larger company as an entrepreneur in that context. And then when I finally got absolutely sick of that, um, I decided that I wanted to move back to the U.S. And I wanted to uh, move somewhere I hadn't been. I'd been to Silicon Valley. Uh, it was the heart of the tech industry. It seemed like the right spot to be in. And it turned out pretty well for me. Uh, um, it was kind of the perfect time. <laughs> well, not the perfect time for many people's view. It was the middle of the economic downturn, the financial crisis. Uh, but it was a great time for entrepreneurship. Uh, it was a great time to be sitting in dog patch labs, you know, 40 feet from 40 feet from Instagram, which I thought was a terrible idea because <laughs> I'm not very smart. Um, it was a great idea to, to learn more about the business of entrepreneurship and kind of be right at the heart of it when all those uh, theories like lean startup and agile and design thinking were really kicking off. Like before there was a book, Lean Startup, there were people just hanging out, uh, having pizza and uh, talking about it. Well, it, that was an interesting time. And I mean, like, like you said, I think some of those topics were kind of coming to the forefront a little bit more. You know, Steve Steve Blank was talking about customer development long, long before yep. Eric, Eric Reese ever wrote that book. But I guess it was in the early 2010s where Lean Startup really kind of became the norm. How did you go from someone focused on marketing and product to kind of being a, a process guy? And what was what inspired you to do that? Uh, well, I'm extremely lazy. So I, I absolutely hate having to do the same thing over and over again. Um, so I, I want to figure out the simplest possible way to do it. Um, so yeah, so if, if I find myself manually doing something more than once, then I want to figure out how to wrap a little process around and make it a little bit easier. I mean, that's part of what, what building products is, is, you know, taking taking a problem that somebody has and maybe they have a hack together solution and saying, well, this is incredibly inefficient. How do we automate this? And so looking at design thinking, clean startup, that, that those sort of philosophies, um, you know, I, I don't think of them as a very fixed process, but there are certain patterns that repeat that you can reuse in project after project after project and different ways of testing ideas that I think is incredibly valuable. Uh, so honestly, it's just pure laziness on my part.
you know, I'm kind of interested in, let's get into kind of the lean principles and the lean method a little bit, since it is something that, you know, maybe has different meanings to different people, you know, here in a university setting, I think it's a, a maybe a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot and people talk about a lot, but maybe don't really know exactly what it means. As someone who's an expert in the space, can you kind of share what you feel the kind of core tenets and core principles are? How would you kind of define that in the context in which you use it at least? Well, the, the simplest way to think about it is just try something, uh, see if it works, and if it doesn't, try something else. Uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, it is somewhat based on the scientific method. Uh, there is a lot more sophistication that you can have there in terms of creating a well-grounded hypothesis, attempting to falsify that hypothesis instead of validate it. Uh, but really, it just boils down to being open to change elements of your idea or your business in order to get something that actually works. You know, being open to evidence to prove you wrong. So I always think of the, the three principles for me are always, uh, number one, ignorance, that we must start from a place of ignorance. Uh, if you think you know everything, Lean Startup is not for you. That's uh, it's not a good place to be. Um, you can't learn anything if you think you know everything. So uh, ignorance, perspective, uh, it is absolutely necessary for you to get information from outside of yourself. Even different perspectives looking at the same, same problem or the same data can result in new insights. So getting information from outside of yourself, however you can, is absolutely critical. And, and getting as many different perspectives as possible will allow you to kind of triangulate the truth about what the user wants and what the user needs. Uh, and then that third principle is just the, uh, the, the buzzwordy uh, build, measure, learn loop, uh, which everybody kind of knows, but I think there's a lot of subtlety that people miss. Uh, in particular, it's, it's not just about having a loop. There's tons of those loops. There's observe, orient, decide, act. There's plan, do, check, act. There's a lot of names for the same sort of learning process. But Lean Startup has a particular emphasis on speed. You know, the speed that we want in Lean Startup is talking about a, a loop of days or even hours sometimes, uh, not one where it takes months to build something and get a result. And secondly, that loop is actually technically backwards. Uh, we're not supposed to just build something randomly and then hope to see if it works and then try and hope to learn. That's, I mean, you know, you're in a university now, that would be essentially like trying to get a degree by randomly picking courses in the course catalog and just hoping for the best. Uh, it's not a very efficient way to make progress. So we actually try and go backwards and again, start with ignorance and say, well, what do you want to learn? And then go backwards and say, well, all right, build, measure, learn, all right, measure. Well, what are we gonna measure? What data would actually be useful? So what do we wanna learn? What questions do we have? what data would actually answer those questions, and then go backwards and say, what sort of experiment or research can I build or create that's gonna give me that information? Even if it doesn't require building anything, even if it's just, as going back to Steve Blank, as you mentioned, it just means going to talk people. Maybe that's your build loop, right? So backwards and forwards through that loop. Gotcha. I'm interested in, maybe some places where it's a little more difficult to implement a process like that. Yeah. I, I think I told you offline that, you know, I had a startup that was a B2B SaaS and we had huge you know, major brand clients, fortune 500 clients where they owned the customer and, you know, we provided the 
the technology. So we kind of had to sell the vision and then build it for them. And we didn't have a lot of opportunities to, to really get engagement outside of the client, which in a big organization was really their, their technical teams and um, with very stringent roadmaps and timelines. And, and there were a lot of challenges. So even though I had the, the ethos embedded in me and I'm a process guy myself, I really struggled with figuring out how to kind of apply some of those tenants. Are there places where it doesn't work or are there adaptations worth considering in those types of contexts? Yeah, I mean, the, the principles are the principles, right? Like there is no situation where you would want to go slower rather than faster around that loop. So there are domains where you simply can't do a one day test. Now I spoke to the Austrian forestry service at some point and you know what? They cannot grow trees any faster than they currently grow. Like there's no technology that's going to help that at least at the moment. Maybe they'll do some awesome CRISPR gene editing stuff later, but for the moment, the tree is the tree. Uh, but there's still kind of ways to hack around that and to investigate, well, areas of your business where you perhaps can can be a little bit faster and perhaps can use data uh, data or other services to help you accelerate, such as in the Austrian forest, you might use drones to go out and collect information. You might use various different IoT sensors to collect moisture levels, which might help you predict how many trees you will grow or, or how fast they will grow or whether you're at risk of having a fire. Um, and so those things are, are still uh, areas where you can iterate rather quickly. So you have to navigate a little bit within the domain. But what the other typical complexity that you just mentioned is when you're doing complex sales as opposed to simple sales, uh, which is basically when there's more than one person who has to say yes, and there might be several people who can say no uh, to actually sell something into a client. And what you're talking about is even harder because it's kind of B to B to C, I think from what you described is right. that right that's right. right so so i get to sell it to one company and they sell it to the end consumer but even if i have the perfect product for the consumers i still have to create this have to convince this business to sell it on my behalf as a channel right so the complexity of that is you have you have to have one product that satisfies many different people and those people may not agree at all on on what they want and this is even a problem in, in consumer goods where I, where I do a reasonable amount of work. You know, the, con the customer in consumer goods is generally not the consumer. It's not you and me. It's, it's the retailer. It's people like Walmart. You know, because if they don't think it's a good idea, even if it is, they're not going to put it on the shelf and you're not going to sell anything. So, so that that area I think is much harder to iterate on because you do have to you have this such a long sales cycle you have these twelve month sales cycles, but I think still think it's possible to actually measure and iterate very quickly because you can even in a sales call establish some criteria by what success looks like. Like you've probably done many of those sales calls in your life, right? Oh yes, you bet. Right, so there's there's the sales calls where we walk out of them and we feel great right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was great. We talked about going on this boat once the deal is signed, right? Um, where everything feels good and you think you're making progress, um, but uh, maybe you didn't actually agree on next steps in that call. Mm -hmm. So that to me is a bad sales call. Right. Right. Uh, it felt really great, but you actually didn't make any progress because there were no next steps agreed. And so a good sales call to me is actually measurable because there's always one thing that 
you agree to do for the customer as a next step. Oh, I will prep this demo for you. I'll give you access. I'll send you the sales flyer or something like that. And there's one thing that they agree to do for you in exchange, right? which is, well, I'll set you up with a non-disclosure agreement. I'll tell you our procurement needs. Um, something. I'll introduce you to one of our end customers. Uh, there has to be some sort of exchange like that. And that uh, allows me to kind of design these tests or design these small sales processes where I can measure progress by seeing if the other person is willing to exchange value with me in some way. And then I can further measure if I'm likely to close that sale, depending on whether or not they do the thing that they promised. So there are a lot of little ways like that where I can kind of hack the process and establish small milestones that are really, uh, that will not take 12 months because I can do that in one sales call. I can even start measuring whether or not anybody will schedule the sales call with me. So I can start looking at the open rates for my cold emails to all my B2B customers. I can look at their click-through rates. I can look at whether or not they're responding to me. I can look at how long it takes me to set up a meeting that indicates some level of urgency. So there are lots of little tricks that you can do to break up a large sales funnel into something that's much more discrete and manageable, uh, but that doesn't make it any easier and it still takes a lot of effort. Right. Well, it was one of the things that you said uh, made me chuckle actually about how many people it takes to say yes versus say no. We used to have, yeah. a, we had a sign up in our office that said it takes 12 people to say yes and only one to say no as we were navigating the, the business development. Yeah process with big companies you know you're uh, you come out with those wins and I agree the call to action in each of those those sales calls are, are so vital but you know you sell 10 of them and then there's there's one you know you get the the tech team on board you get the operations and the marketing on board and then the the CFO says well we don't like this for some reason and then it's you know back down yeah. back down the ladder <laughs> right and then that's, you know, back to shortening the sales cycle. If we were building a product um, and you had 10 features to build and, you know, one of them was very high risk, but if you don't build that feature and get it to work right, the product is going to be functionally useless. Right? We, in Lean Startup, we would want to address that first, right? We wouldn't want to, you know, wind up tweaking like, well, do we want to have square buttons or buttons with four pixel rounded corners? That would be a waste of time. Right. So in the B2B sales cycle, it's very similar in that we would want to try and address those big risks as early as possible. So I'm typically working with, uh, I, I typically give office hours to early stage startups like twice a week. And I'm always trying to tell them like, look, on your first or second call, you should be trying to get introduced to the procurement department because the procurement department has a list of things, you know, an arm's length long, which they need to check off before they can do business with you. And it's going to take six months just to get through that checklist. And if one of those items on the checklist is, we cannot do business with a company with less than a million dollars in revenue, you're done. Like, so don't bother trying to sell that to that customer. Like, go deal with somebody else or you're gonna have to find something clever. So you wanna address those risks very early. And so I, I think actually bringing those things like perhaps talking to the CFO or at least understanding what the CFO's requirements are or the procurement department or the legal department Bringing that stuff early into the sales process is incredibly valuable, uh, and it feels bad because you're going to get no's earlier, but I'd rather have an early no than waste 12 months uh, to get that, as you said, final no and have to go back to the start. Indeed, indeed. It, it, you know, it was really interesting. I actually didn't expect this conversation to kind of go in this direction. You know, so much 
so much, uh, so many of the topics, at least that people talk about in the context of lean is, you know, in organizational development with your, with your yeah. own business. And of course, in, in product as well, there's all sorts of, I wouldn't, I don't know if they're subcategories, but methods that are kind of mirroring some of the principles in lean that are used for product development, but hearing you kind of talk about it in, in, in sales and business development and some other aspects of growing a business is, is quite interesting. And, you know, since our audience is, uh, many of them are nascent entrepreneurs or, you know, first time founders that are just getting off the ground, you know, maybe you could share a little bit about you know, what parts of growing a business where you see these principles really being most important and maybe some areas that uh, normally people wouldn't consider that should be looked at? I think sales was one that was interesting. I don't know if you have any other other areas where you think this is really, really relevant to early stage startups. I mean, honestly, I think it's pretty relevant across the board, um, even in terms of you know, how you scale out your own team, uh, you know, failing early and failing fast can be very valuable. You don't want to hire somebody and then wait for 12 months before figuring out it. Well, I actually don't like working with this person very much. Um, you know, in the first week or even in the hiring process, can you give that person sort of MVP? Like, is trying to test out that relationship as early as possible and kind of like put it through the meat grinder, if you will. Um, but sales is, sales is a massive one. Again, I'm super lazy. I don't like sales. Uh, it's not my forte. So because of that, I want to do it as efficiently as possible. And uh, I, I want to feel good about it at the end of the day. I don't like to feel like I'm selling a used car. So I, I want to figure out how I can most efficiently communicate with my customer and make sure that it's the right one because I, I don't want to sell anything that's worthless and they certainly don't want to buy anything that's worthless. So applying all those lean tools to that process and that, that, that mindset of design thinking, I think is incredibly valuable across the board with perhaps the only exception being like dealing with your taxes, <laughs> like just, just hire an accountant. Just source like, that don't, out. Don't experiment. <laughs> don't, don't experiment on things that you, that are unimportant to the ultimate impact. Right. Uh, just, just deal with it. curious this might be a little bit off topic but it's something that's quite relevant here and i think i told you offline a little bit that uh you know the the german startup ecosystem is just kind of exploding there's tons of capital yeah. flowing there's a you know i started a company in, in munich 10 years ago and the challenges of raising capital or at least sophisticated capital were so difficult that i ended up moving back to colorado now there is money flowing um and I think there's a, a general feeling as a founder um, that you're going to come up with an idea, bring some of your buddies together, model it out in your apartment, and then go raise some seed capital. 
you're in a much more sophisticated, I would say, or maybe a little more evolved ecosystem in, in the Bay Area. What are your thoughts on um, bootstrapping versus, versus um, you know, early capitalization? Because to me, in some ways, bootstrapping is more mirrored towards lean than, uh, than otherwise. Do you feel that's the case? And what do you think about that approach? Well, I, I mean, I, I love bootstrapping because I, I would like to own as much of my own company as I can. Right. So I absolutely uh, endorse bootstrapping. It, it doesn't have anything I think in particular to do with lean or not. You, know, you can be lean with $10 million in the bank. It just depends on what you're building. I mean, I think SpaceX is, is fairly lean. You know, they're, they're pretty good at building a repeatable product. You know, they're, they're in fact trying to build an iterative model for, for uh, space exploration right, and space, space technologies. So they're building the platform. They're building the Amazon Web Services of space by building reusable rockets. I think that's pretty lean. But each of those rockets got to cost like, I don't know, $40 million, $50 million. I, I don't even know. So it, it's not a question of being cheap. It's just a question of being efficient. So it's, it's uh, not lean as in you weigh 30 pounds. It's, it's lean as in you have no fat on your, on your team. There's nobody sitting around doing nothing that your capital is, is being used consistently to learn and develop your business model as opposed to, you know, buy amazing shares for your office space. So I, I think that's the only danger of having too much capital is just kind of being flush with it and spending on, on things you don't really need or scaling up before you're genuinely ready. Cause it's very, very easy to convince yourself that you have the best product and all you need to do is hire the right marketing team. But if you, the founder, have not figured out how to market and your, your core team has not figured out how to sell, nobody else is going to figure out how to sell for you. You need to figure that out before you hire a sales team, not afterwards. And you need to write the playbook that everyone else is going to follow. So if you're not lean and scrappy and, and making efficient use of your capital, you're going to spend it poorly and you're going to wind up in a big problem when the eventual next crunch comes down and you're not going to be able to raise your next capital. Uh, so be careful if you're raising too much money too early and spending it too quickly. Well, let's take what you said there and apply it to a context that you're also familiar with, because I think that's really interesting when we're talking about, you know, um, trying to shed fat and not be particularly, uh, your, or to be spendthrift and, yeah. and, and cognizant of your, your limited resources. I would imagine that could be a hard challenge bringing this into a corporate entrepreneurship environment where, you know, large companies, I think systemically probably even account for having some inefficiency in there. Um, and here you are kind of espousing these principles of, of being really efficient and effective in contexts that may, they themselves may not be so inefficient. Do you kind of run into loggerheads in some of those situations or how do you adapt to, to that type of environment? Yeah, it, it's kind of weird because there are there are almost these two diametrically opposed company philosophies. One is very spendthrift, where you know getting two thousand dollars out of them to do a startup project is like, oh, do you really need two thousand dollars? Or can you do it with fifteen hundred? It's like, come on, it's two thousand dollars, and I know this company's revenue. It's a publicly listed company, and and it's ten billion dollars. Like, why are you? 
uh, why are you complaining so much about two grand? Um, and then there are companies that go the other way around and just say like, well, this is a great idea. Let's throw $10 million on it. And it's, it's very much the same thing. It mirrors the startup ecosystem in many ways. And it's, it's the result of having unsophisticated investors, essentially. Um, these are investors which may be more familiar with the real estate business and they think they can give you $60,000 and they're going to take 80% of your company because they're putting in all the cash. Um, in business, we just call those kind of bad business sponsors or uh, we don't like to call them uneducated because they don't like that. Um, but they're just, they're used to investing in business models that they know and, and how to invest in a disruptive business model or transformative business model where there are no clear metrics to invest in and they don't even know which metrics to look at is very challenging and it takes a, a specific skill set. Um, so I do get a lot of pushback and it's, it's, it's very funny. Uh, I, I can, you know, I can take a million dollar project and, you know, figure out it's a terrible idea in the first month and return $900,000 or so, you know, back to the mothership to invest in another project. And from my perspective, that's a huge win, right? I just saved the company $900,000. Uh, but the company might look at it and be like, oh, we wasted $100,000. Like that's, that's just the wrong perspective. And the funny thing is the finance departments in large companies, they are actually completely on board with this stuff. They understand what uh, some cost is. They understand that if you, if you don't spend the money, that's as good as earning uh, money. Um, but uh, the way a lot of corporations are organized is very much to protect the status quo and to emphasize certain, certain metrics that are attractive to the public markets. And so that causes a very large disconnect between innovation, which is a very long-term uh, strategy generally, and the short-term focus of those KPIs that everybody's being held uh, to account for. So it's a little long-winded. I'm being pretty long-winded in general today, but, but that's the way it is. It's, it's just a question of misaligned metrics and people with a short-term focus as opposed to a long-term focus. So there's a lot of work that has to be done to kind of pull those things apart and give you enough freedom on the innovation side to really pursue interesting ideas while still kind of feeding the beast. You know, it's interesting talking about the short versus long-term because I think a lot of people would assume that startups are working in short-term contexts and, you know, established corporates are working on longer timelines. But oftentimes yeah. when you see them in operation, you know, a corporate is working on, especially a publicly traded one, is working on quarterly earnings reports. and. Yep. And a startup might be chasing, you know, have two years of runway, something along those lines. What do you see as the fundamental differences in applying lean methods in a large corporate setting versus uh, a, an early stage or a high growth startup? Do you see some big differences? Uh, there are, in terms of the fundamentals, it's, it's honestly, it's the exact same thing. Uh, I, I work with a lot of startup ecosystem builders, so accelerators and government agencies who maybe want to increase innovation within Wallonia or, or Estonia, right? Um, so I, I've spent a lot of time looking at different ecosystems uh, and kind of what are their constraints that, that support or hinder um, innovation within an environment. And they all have direct analogs in a corporate environment, um, whether it's bureaucratic processes in a corporation that uh, is the equivalent of regulatory uh, burdens in a startup environment, whether it's a lack of finding a co-founder in the startup world and in the business world, it's lack of finding a co-founder. Like, well, 
I'm dedicated to this project, but the rest of my team is dedicated one tenth of the time because they have 12 other projects they need to work on. It's the same thing. The, the, the same challenge is essentially I am lacking the skill sets for me to get around the build, measure, learn. Like just in my team, they've been promised, but they're not there. I've got a co-founder who has a day job at, at Google, so he's not willing to code for me too often. You know, um, there are different emphases, like for sure, there's a higher degree of apathy and you know acceptance in the status quo in larger companies rather than in the startup world. Uh, but even if you go to different environments, uh, you know, there's still that palpable fear of you know sticking your neck out and you know if I start this company and it fails, you know I'm never going to get another job. Like that, nobody would ever say that in Silicon Valley. But if you were in Mexico or Japan, uh, you would have a very uh, real and rational fear that if you started a company and it failed, you were going to have a harder time getting a job. Uh, and it's the same thing inside a larger company. I mean, no one wants to be on the project that fails. Like you want to avoid that. You want to transfer out as soon as possible. So you get all these projects, which you know <laughs> will, will take a year or longer. And guaranteed, after six months, half of the team is going to be transferred away, and the other half of the team is going to be transferred away three months later. So you'll have this project that I've been assigned to. Uh, one of my first corporate projects I was assigned to and I was brought in to help the marketing team market this product that had already been built and existed. And nobody really knew why they built it. Like They had an idea. They had some documents. They had some a big feature list, but it was just a big feature list. They didn't really know why the consumer wanted it or which of these features actually like were going to solve a problem for the customer. And they had to redo all that work you know, almost from scratch. And fortunately, they, they were able to find the one feature, which was kind of the gem that everybody was really able to sign up for. But uh, it was just such a ridiculous process. Uh, and, and that's just caused by the, the structure of a corporation that, that would never really happen uh, or would be highly unlikely to happen in a, a startup land. But you still see these same patterns again and again. There's lack of skills, fear, uh, lack of investment, loneliness even. So it's it's honestly the same. Well, it's interesting. Like you know, I I see some of the structural differences, but you know, one of the things that and and I'll I'll be transparent. I've never worked in a corporate setting in my life. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Although I've had good for corporate, you corporate clients. Um, and you know, one of the big I guess cultural components that I think about a lot is the willingness and adaptability to change. And I think almost by definition, these processes are, are designed to foster uh, efficient change. But sometimes in certain settings, you have people, individuals particularly, that are, are reluctant to, to change. And in some cases, institutions as a result that move slow because of that. Would you say that that's, uh, is that something that you notice as well? People that are, uh, you mentioned apathetic, but do you think people um, maybe get complacent in those environments? Well, I, uh, so I, I use apathy in a very specific sense of the term and that it's more structural apathy rather than, gotcha. than a, a person's apathy. Um, so the only, the only thing I would push back on is the belief that it's maybe like this person's fault or, or these people's fault, or it, it's something that's, that's just like, ah, it's just like our people are, are not motivated. Uh, I have actually almost never found that to be the case. Um, and in fact, when I, for, I've worked for a company called Luxor years back, which, which ran a lot of accelerated, pro, accelerated programs. I worked with Janice Frazier and we were approached by corporations kind of increasingly 
And there was a, a, a big feeling in the team actually that we didn't want to work with them because there was this sense that like, oh, corporations are never going to do anything meaningful. Uh, you know, they're all, they're all, you know, sitting in their little cubicles with their ties, you know, <laughs> shivering from the cold and they're never going to do anything. <laughs> and uh, honestly, like having taken a couple of those gigs early on uh, with Janice, like I think it's actually nonsense. Um, yes, they have cubicles. Yes, it's always too cold in the offices, but the people, <laughs> the people there are just like people anywhere. They, they are happy to change. They actually get really excited and encouraged when they, when they can do something innovative. But there are a lot of structural things about the system that they're working in, which will cause them to draw back and hesitate. You know, so if your KPIs for the year, you know, the performance review, which your salary is based on, and, and in fact, the funding of your project is based on, you know, is quarterly growth, and you're given a transformative innovation project that's not going to see the light of day for five years, or it's going to take five years for the market to grow enough to see any ROI, well, then, of course, you are going to de-emphasize that work. You know, I think it's a tribute to the corporate innovation folks because they're often as willing, if not more willing, than entrepreneurs to put in the weekend work because that is the only time anything gets done. You know, they're willing to work evenings. They're willing to work in the uh, uh, on the weekends, uh, they just need to be given the freedom to do so because they will do that up to a certain point, and then they will say, "You know what? If you can't assign me full time to this project, I'm leaving." Right? And then they become entrepreneurs, and then they compete against the original business, uh, which is really vicious. Uh, but it's the same thing in entrepreneurship. You know, there's only a certain amount of weekends and nights that you can put in until you better raise a seed round. Otherwise, there's just no way to make any progress on the project. So, so yeah, I'm I'm for humans. Rock on, humans. Hell yeah. The system is the problem. Well, I want to talk about one more type of kind of large institution because I'm sitting in one right now here at a university, albeit a, a very small and, and relatively lean one. But, you know, you're in the business of educating, mentoring, coaching, um, and teaching entrepreneurship and methods of entrepreneurship. I imagine that that is a very different approach and context as to teaching students entrepreneurship in the academic environment. Do you have any ideas or insights of, you know, what some of the different opportunities or challenges might be between the two and how we can take some of this practical teaching methods and approaches and, and use them to help inform and make better entrepreneurs that are perhaps younger and in the higher ed environment? 
Yeah, I, I always struggle with this a bit because I, I do teach uh, classes sometimes. Um, and it's always this, again, weird compromise between, you know, doing something that's kind of academically uh, accepted and doing something which I think is actually going to be useful for students. That I, I think reading about Lean Startup is just not a super useful thing to do. Um, it's kind of like reading a you know, book about Pele or, or Beckham or something like that, doing a bicycle kick and then thinking that, all right, now I'm ready to do a bicycle kick. You know, I'm ready to play with Real Madrid. And, and that's just ridiculous. Like you actually need to go and practice. These are all practical skills. So even if you, it, I mean, it seems very intellectual. Oh, well, that's a landing page test. I know. I'll just put up an explainer video and get people to sign up their email. But uh, so many times I see entrepreneurs put up a landing page test and, and they'll call me up from my office and be like, oh, I don't understand why people aren't signing up. It's such a good explainer video. Like, what's going, what's gone wrong? And I'm like, all right, well, let's take, it your, take a look at your analytics. Okay, your conversion rate is zero. I know right now exactly what's wrong. Like, the most likely reason for you to have a conversion rate of zero is that you have installed Google Analytics incorrectly. <laughs> Every time. And like you can be staring at that dashboard forever, but you've messed up the most basic thing, right? Like you forgot a semicolon somewhere in your code and you're just not tracking the right events. You know, and, and there's just a lot of common like little nuances like, well, okay, conversion rate isn't zero, but it's close to zero. Well, you probably have the wrong target audience. You probably haven't run a comprehension test on your landing page before you launched it, which is something that's very important to do. Make sure people understand your value proposition. If you're using a lot of jargon and words and uh, only 50% of your audience understands that you're selling shoes, uh, then you've lost 50% of your sales right off the bat. So there, there are just these nuances in how you execute that are really critical. And I, I think if professors are not teaching with real projects that people can actually dig their teeth into and try and execute, uh, they're really doing a disservice to the students. And I know that that sucks uh, because it's against the teacher's best interest, again, to actually give them real projects because half of the students are going to hate you. Uh, and I, I know this because I've taught those courses. <laughs> right? it's, it's actually bad for the professor to do that because it would be much easier to teach in an academic sense, maybe give some exercises and give a test. Um, and you're going to get higher results on your, you know, on your teacher survey at the end. But actually throwing people out of the building and forcing them to, to walk the walk is going to be more productive and produce better entrepreneurs in the long run. Uh, but half of your students are going to hate you and give you bad reviews. So uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I think the Lean Launchpad course by Steve Blank is probably the best academic program I've seen because you really have to have a project that you're passionate about that you genuinely want to succeed before you even go in the door. And that in and of itself, you know, that will make a course 20 times better uh, if you if you just get that criteria coming into the course. Right. Yeah, that's something that uh, we're moving towards here. Prior, you would have to, to get into the Master in Entrepreneurship program, you'd have to apply with GMAT scores. And yeah. uh, as of next year, it's going to be a pitch deck, you know, with the idea that, you know, people are starting to come in at least with some conceptual understanding and thinking about, thinking about something. Um, the challenge is like we, just finished a, a sprint course where the students, both master students and executive MBA, spent a semester building a startup as 
teams and they pitched in front of VCs in Berlin last week. The big challenge is, is they're still in the academic setting. They still have a year and a half to go. How do you maintain yeah. momentum, you know? And uh, you are kind of straddling two different worlds. It can be a, it can be a challenge. Yeah, uh, because we're still, our university system is still geared towards accreditation, right? Rather than competency. Right? From, from my perspective, I, I would really love to, if, if I could design an entrepreneurship program from the ground up, now, I would say, well, first of all, you cannot even apply uh, until you have tried to do a startup and failed. That'd be great criteria because now I know you're going to listen to everything we're talking about. You, you've seen what it is to fail. You've seen what it is to try and build a product that nobody wants. And it doesn't need to be a giant failure. You don't need to have to invested 10 years of your life into it, but you've at least you know, launched something in a month and recognize that nobody is actually interested in that project. And then... If they, as you say, if, if, if they take a three-month course and they actually manage to make progress and they're succeeding and their pitch at the end of three months for seed capital goes to a venture capitalist and, and they say, yes, here, take my money, please. Great. You know, why do they need to spend the next year and a half at a university? Why not, why not just give them the classes that they can take on demand? And then, uh, you know, if... If they succeed in a year and a half, let's just give them a degree. They don't need to have been in the university. They've learned in real life. So why don't we just uh, give them credit for the competencies they developed instead of just requiring them to have checked off this number of boxes on their transcript? Uh, you know, that's what we should be doing. And I think that's the direction where universities are going to be forced to move one way or the other because there are certain skills like coding where getting a university degree is not as relevant as passing, you know, JavaScript certification, you know, proving that you have the skill rather than you've attended the classes. Right. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I know we're a little pressed for time and I want to ask you just a couple rapid fire questions to, to wrap things up. I think I could have this conversation all day, but, um, shoot. Although I, I would be remiss to not uh, realize that I should probably mention that I, I am building the system I've just described. I'm, I'm building, uh, but we'll see if it works. It probably will be an utter disaster, but I'm going to build it anyway. Uh, see if it happens in a higher ed context or not in a higher ed context. I, I just think there's not enough traction in a higher ed context, but, delivering the right skills at the right time, you know, teaching statistics when it's relevant, uh, when a, a startup is at the right scale rather than on day one. Um, these sorts of things, being able to pull those courses off the shelf uh, and get real feedback from real experienced entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, um, that's what I, I'm building with my team. That's awesome. You know, and I think there's a little progress in that. We've got a, a really successful um, alumnus here who's coming back to teach a course. But instead of teaching the course, each module, each course is being taught by a highly successful entrepreneur kind of Great. doing the storytelling side of things. And you know, it was interesting. We had students in Berlin. We were at a, a VC the other day. And you know, for me, it was like, because I made so many mistakes in capitalization, it was, it was like PTSD all over again, <laughs> but look at, looking at term sheets and, you know, here's yeah. a, a group of brilliant, brilliant minds and, and entrepreneurial minds. And, you know, they're taking all these courses, but they didn't know what a liquidation, what a two X or three X liquidation preference was. And yeah. those are the kinds of things that, 
you know, maybe you get into levels of detail that you don't need to learn in a course per se, but until you feel them firsthand and when you feel the implications of them firsthand, they are literally embedded in your brain forever, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's wonderful just because if nothing else, people will leave the course that you just described knowing what they don't know. Right. Okay. And once, once you know what you don't know, then you can go and learn or buy a book or get help or get an advisor. But uh, until you know that liquidation preference is a thing that can really upset your personal finances at the end of the day, uh, you would never even know to Google that. Right, right. You know, I, I just want to touch on one other thing you said too, because I think it's it's so relevant. It is this this idea of you know having some experience with failure. This is a topic yeah. of conversation that I have quite a bit here. You know, where I come from in Boulder, every year they have a parade where they parade all the failed entrepreneurs down the street and have a big celebration. <laughs> and you know, great. frankly, those no are those are the guys and gals that are going to be most likely to build another company and raise more capital. And I think there is maybe an American culture of acceptance to failure and understanding that there are huge learnings that often come out of that. I think Germany's not quite there yet, although it is getting better. It's but getting better. Still, still too many stories of, uh, you know, entrepreneurs failing at a business, maybe not even failing catastrophically, but really struggling to raise capital again. And I just think it's a really great to mention that how important that it can be and how positive it can be to have those failures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I, I can't say it better than you did. I want to then I want to segue to a couple just personal questions. Um, I ask all of the people sure. that are on the podcast them, and most of them are annoyed as hell by it. But um, just a little insight into Tristan, the human being. Um, so, what book is on your bedside table right now? What are you reading? Um, I have my on my Kindle. I am reading Rita McGrath's new book, uh, Seeing Around Corners, which I'm finding very good. And then I have a, a stack of books. They're they're kind of they alternate between like, ooh, business book and sci-fi, and business book and sci-fi. So mm -hmm. I've got a, a new novel by N.K. Jemisin, uh, which I don't remember the the novel, but it's some some sci-fi book. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't think I've had anyone on the podcast yet that didn't have a stack of books. It's never just, <laughs> never just one that they read from beginning to end. 
Oh, I have a, a very long list of books, uh, and I have a lot of friends who write books. So, I, so I have, yeah, a very long alternation. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do think it's important to balance between some fiction reading, which will get you think thinking of things from different perspectives that you might not have considered, uh, to you know something that may be a little bit more pragmatic, like your whatever, whether that's you know how to do a cash flow statement or whether it's how to meditate better, like something that's going to kind of improve you in the long run. But there has to be a little bit of dreaming involved. You know, I think that's really great because I just did an interview last week with a really successful entrepreneur in Berlin, and he said he mostly reads sci-fi and he gets yeah. so, so much inspiration from science fiction. Yeah, sci-fi is really great because, I'm, I mean, well, there, there's kind of hacky sci-fi, which is like, oh, there's a robot and it blows up and that stuff. Uh, and then there's really a sci-fi, which is principal, principally like fantastical sociology. Like what happens to society if we have a transporter or, you know, robots or things like that. And, and that I think is really useful if for, for no other reason than, than, and this is a failing, I think, of the Silicon Valley ecosystem, is there is not a lot of consideration to the society societal or ethical impacts of some of the technologies that we're building and uh it might be good to think about those things before we release things like scooters and self-driving cars you know what is the <laughs> impact of that actually going to have um and too much there's a kind of cult of disruption is good in and of itself rather than thinking and thinking well how do we manage that disruption what's going to be what's going to actually have the impact that we run rather than just kind of seizing a larger share of the pie for ourselves. Right. So okay. that that's a big can of worms discussion. And I'm sure people yeah. listening right now got a chuckle out of the, the scooter yeah. point because every big city in Germany has like four scooter companies. And I think they're making people mental. At this yeah. Point, so. We had a big issue in Silicon Valley and they banned them. And I personally have tripped over more than one. So they, they irritate the hell out of me. <laughs> All right, I want to I want to ask one more kind of personal question. Um, what's on your playlist right now? What uh, being on the other side of the pond? What uh, what's like music through your playlist musically? Yeah. Oh, uh, hold on. Let me look on my Slack channel. <laughs> we have a Slack channel in our company for just music. So, um, so I was just listening last night to this Korean uh, Korean band uh, that did an NPR Tiny Desk concert called Sing Sing with two S's on both things. Uh, I, I, I was out on NPR last night. And then I heard uh, Tank and the Bongas, who are awesome. I would absolutely highly recommend those two bands. They're, they're fantastic. And Georgia Smith, and then Mariachi Flor de Tolo Ache. I'm probably pronouncing that poorly. Uh, absolutely fantastic music. I really like a lot of different world and, and interesting genres combining. So uh, NPR has a lot of that stuff. Ooh, and one more, Daka Braka, which is a Ukrainian band, and they sound crazy, uh, but very very groovy, very very cool. Nice. Is that a Gogol Bordello kind of style? High energy Ukrainian. I, yeah. It's definitely high energy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what Google Bordrello is, but it's <laughs> like I heard it. And I was like, "What is going on? What is coming out of my speakers?" Which is the type of music I like to hear. Something, something different that I haven't heard before with different rhythms. And uh, usually, I favor a little bit of cacophony. Like I'll, I'll occasionally throw on some Enya if I want to calm down. But like, <laughs> mostly, it's give me enough of a dissonance and and rhythmic dissonance to to want to pay attention to the music. 
Nice, nice. I think I like that you did a shout out to the NPR Tiny Desk concerts. If those, uh, those people here, ones. yeah, I don't think a lot of people here know about it. Check it out on YouTube. There's some really amazing performances you get. On Absolutely there. fantastic, yeah. and they're short. It's usually three songs or so. You can put them on uh, and just let it stream. You're going to discover some amazing new music. Awesome, Tristan. Where can uh, for people that are really interested in the work that you do, where can we find you online? Sure. Uh, so you can go to, thank you very much, by the way. I'm always forgetting to promote myself. I remembered once today, but uh, uh, chromatic.com is where my company sits. And uh, if you're an early stage startup, you might want to go to my blog, grasshopperherder.com. And uh, if you are an early stage startup, I have free office hours there. So we always try and uh, 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 most of my work is with large corporations, but my work with early stage startups is always free because startups have no money, but they need the support. So if you need some help and you're doing an early stage startup, please go there uh, to grasshopperherder.com and uh, sign up for some office hours. I'd be happy to help you. Or you can just tweet at me something rude and I'll probably respond at, at Tricro, T-R-I-K-R-O. Awesome. Awesome. That's really great. I'll make sure to put that in, uh, in the show notes as well. I'll put some cool. links in there. But, uh, you know, it's really great what you do. It's wonderful that you're, uh, you know, I know that you've done some work with Techstars and um, I'm doing my research with bit. them. So I like to always mention that give, that give first ethos, you know, give without expecting anything in return and, and good things seem to happen. And it, I know that you're doing that. But uh, Tristan Cromer, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time out of your San oh. Francisco morning and uh, speaking Pleasure. to our audience. And um, Thank you for having me and thank you for making it later in the day. Awesome. I have well, enough 7 a.m. calls as is, so this was a pleasure, and uh, I hope I didn't ramble on too much. No, it was, uh, it was fascinating and interesting. I just wish we had time to dive in deeper. Maybe we will follow up in the future then. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Garrett. Cheers. Well, folks, that was Tristan Cromer, lean startup guru and founder of lean coaching and innovation advisory, Chromatic. Coming up in episode 16, we'll introduce Hasib Samad and Toby Bruna co-founders of Berlin-based co-living startup, Go Living. We're talking about their journeys from Vehau, HelloFresh, Scout24, N26, and other high-growth German scale-ups before launching their own fast-growing venture. So if you like stories about innovative prop tech, building strong founder teams, or simply wanting to learn more about the Berlin startup scene, you'll really dig this episode. Bis nächstes Mal.